Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. You are tuned in to your local independent volunteer-run community radio station. My name is Andy and I will be hanging out with you for the next hour. Coming to you this week from Wurundjeri Country, Melbourne. Um, And in the show, we are going to be looking much further afield again. We're going to be talking with... Jasmine Pilbro and Rebecca Dowling, who have both been involved with an organization called CPT, Community Peacemaker Teams, which is a human rights organization, goes to conflict zones around the world to try to find uh, non-violent ways of working for peace and justice and support um, people who are being oppressed. And uh, Jasmine spent time in Palestine and Rebecca in Iraqi Kurdistan, um, trying to support people on the ground there. Uh, Just flagging potential conflict of interest in case you're worried. Um, I know many of you rely on the paradigm shift for your impartial media in a world of um, vested interests, but I should say that Rebecca is my wife, actually. I think she does has done great work in Iraqi Kurdistan. We're traveling around Melbourne, and we did catch up with Jasmine, um, and I thought it'd be a good chance to talk about um, CPT and what it does and the experiences of being in these places. Um, Jasmine can't go back to Palestine. She was deported from Israel a few years back, as we'll cover in the interview. Um, myself and Beck are going to go and visit Iraqi Kurdistan shortly, and so you might hear more about that on the paradigm shift. But I do think that uh, trying to find ways to non-violently resolve conflicts is imperative in our world. Um, as Gandhi once said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind and um, so many other issues that we need to deal with are around you know, gender equality, around environmental issues and all kinds of things. You need a base level of peace and stability to try to um, sort some of those things out. And so um, we need to continue to work for peace in the world and Uh, oppressed people, both Palestine and Kurds, they're stateless people, they've been moved around in kind of imperial power games, they've been uh, the subject of um, armed repression 
and there have been people who have never stopped trying to fight back and so kind of inspiring in the way that they've continued to um, organize for their freedom, continue to support for each other. But, but they're certainly in a situation of real need. A lot of people unable to you know, go to their home villages. People have been completely dispossessed and disconnected from their families and uh, things like that. But a couple of people who have been there supporting these uh, struggles for human rights and are able to report back on it for us are Rebecca and Jasmine. So let's have a listen. I'm here with Beck and Jasmine who have both spent time in the area we'd broadly call the Middle East um, with human rights organisation CPT. Can you start off by telling us what... CPT is? CPT is a human rights organization that currently work in Iraqi Kurdistan, Palestine, Colombia and have a presence on the Mexico border and in Turtle Island and in Greece. Working with local communities who are resisting um, occupations and violent forces within their communities. And so you both were involved in that jazz in Palestine and back in Iraqi Kurdistan. How did you get involved in it? Um, so CPT um, was started as a Christian organization and um, I was just really interested in how um, Christians were opposing violence in the world and um, having been involved in a lot of anti-war activism in Australia um, what it would look like to do that um, in the places where Australia was going and fighting. I was a 19-year-old really interested in working in a conflict zone but didn't have any skills or knowledge of what there was available to do as a young person. Um, and I met someone named Carol who had been working in Palestine with CPT um, and she encouraged me to go along on a trip, which I did. Um, and I really fell in love with the place and the work in Palestine. Mm. All right, well, what does CPT do in these places? So we do want to start with Iraqi Kurdistan. What does uh, human rights work look like there? Um, so in Iraqi Kurdistan, we mostly work with villages on the border regions. Um, so farmers and shepherds who um, have been living there for generations, thousand years, and um, are currently being displaced and um, killed by the cross-border bombing from both Turkey and Iran. Mm. And then um, our other project is with civil society within Iraqi Kurdistan, um, teachers and journalists who are being oppressed by the local government. So we work with them um, visiting them in prison and working with their families for their release and advocating uh, for better human rights policies within Kurdistan. The work in Palestine um, is slightly different. Uh, you're working in a, a main city um, in called Hebron. Um, it has a large settler, Israeli settler population within this city, as well as military bases and checkpoints um, within the old city of Hebron. Um, so a lot of the work is on the ground, human rights monitoring, making sure children are getting to school safely, 
responding to house arrest, children arrest, um, and any kind of unsafe situation that arises from the Israeli military police or border police. Um, and a lot of the work, or all of the work is done in conjunction with local community groups, um, schools, activist groups, as well as Jewish activist groups. Um, and there is a bit of work going to villages nearby where they're facing home demolitions um, by the Israeli military. Mm. So a lot of those things you just talked about are sort of reactive things against um, oppression from external or internal um, powers there. But there is a sort of uh, trying to proactively build peace element of um, organising and educating within CPT as well, isn't there? Yeah, so the mission slogan is um, building partnerships to transform violence and oppression. And um, a large focus is building relationships um, within communities and um, supporting them to do what they think is the best uh, way forward for uh, finding non-violent solutions. And so running trainings on request in non-violence and supporting communication between government and villages or um, demonstrations happening. It's similar in Palestine with things around demonstrations, um, working with community groups on training. I think a big focus of their community work is reclaiming space. Um, so one of the things that they did when we were there was occupying their own land by um, knocking down a wall and turning this about three square metres space into an area for a local um, kindergarten and that became a place with artwork and children's equipment which used to be an additional fencing. Um, so things like that supporting community as they um, think of creative ways of resisting um, the violence in their community. Um, CPT became famous, I guess, initially through a tactic of what they called human shields, um, uh, sending Western white people to these kind of conflict zones in an attempt to get more attention paid to the violence that was happening there, quite famously in both Iraq and Palestine. Um, that tactic has changed somewhat in the organisation. You want to talk a bit about, I guess, the, the pros and cons of that tactic and how that change happened? Yeah, I think it was quite slow moving, um, but definitely had to do with people um, trying to find longevity in the project and um, how to stay within a community for longer and um, and build up resistance from the, with the local people, who it's not so easy for, for them necessarily to um, put themselves in the way like these Westerners were and then um, be arrested and ported and they're fine in the long run. Tactics change both because of, from both a practical and philosophical point of view, um, seeking tactics that um, could be continued in the long run and provide um, a real friendship and partnership between people, as well as um, realising that they needed to listen to what local people actually wanted to do and um, be led by grassroots initiatives rather than just bringing in white people to do these projects. 
Yeah, I definitely agree with that last point and would add that it was a component of it um, was about safety as well. So when you have foreigners coming in and risking their own safety, who are the locals that are then on the ground trying to respond to that and um, follow up on an arrest or if someone is injured, who are the locals that are then in danger to assist um, the foreigners that are coming in. So I think it was a really good and important shift um, but it's definitely a shift that I know, at least in the Palestine team, it could be really hard in situations where you wanted to physically intervene or to stand in the way of, you know, a Palestinian being arrested but knowing that that could actually escalate things or that might put other people in danger or even at the end of the day it wasn't a long-term solution, that child might have been taken at another point. Um, so I think it was a good change in helping to reflect and focus on what tactics could be long-term solutions um, to making change and ensuring the safety of the community as much as you could in your actions. Mm. So CPT being in uh, Palestine and Kurdistan hasn't stopped conflict necessarily, but what things do you think have come from CPT being in these places? I think there's a lot of individual stories of, um, uh, yeah, it's very hard to tell what would happen if CPT hadn't been there. Um, but like in Kurdistan, we, I meet quite a lot of people who have known CPT over the years and talk about how amazing it's been, um, their connection to CPT, things CPT has done for them, um, training that's happened, um, CPT helped uh, bring alternative surveillance projects into Iraqi Kurdistan and um, trained quite a few locals in it and now it's that group's completely run by Kurdish people uh, who love it, who love it and they're finding new people to do the trainings and um, I went to one of their trainings as um, to be trained and um, it was amazing to just see how much passion they had for that project. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's lots of stories like that. Villagers who um, have electricity or ro improved roads and are really grateful for what CPT's done. People who were released from prison while I was there who um, had, were in prison for false charges and being threatened with 10, 7 years in prison and were released after a year and um, say that's just because of CPT's work. I think um, with Palestine, it is very small personal changes. Um, I think something the Iraqi team does really well is that advocacy and kind of um, communication with politicians and government. Um, but I think with Palestine, a big part of it is purely so solidarity and getting messages out um, during 2018 um, the UN group that was in Hebron were kicked out and another group that were on the ground were also um, they ended their project so CPT was one of the only international groups on the ground and they were able to continue that relationship um, so I don't I personally can't think of any kind of big um, changes but I don't think that was part of CPT's goal in the sense of ending the occupation because that's such a huge 
um, long-term goal, which is going to involve a collective of local and international organisations doing a variety of work. But I think having that solidarity, having people witness what's happening um, and being part of sharing the truth of what's going on is probably the, the key part of CPT in Palestine. Yeah, I want to talk about um, obstacles involved um, for peace and for, I guess, international NGOs being in these places. Um, there's a few, and particularly Jazz, for you, you came across some pretty hard obstacles um, in continuing your work in Palestine and you were deported from there. Do you want to... I guess tell us a bit about that and then maybe other obstacles that have come up. Hmm. Um, I think, yeah, so deportation is a huge risk for anyone that's going into Palestine to work with a human rights organisation or to just be involved or connected with Palestinians in general. Um, and at the time when I was there, um, there was a heightened focus on CPT. Um, we had been quite prominent in the community at that time um, and about eight of us were denied entry um, within about a year um, and that's been an ongoing issue for the last 20 plus years in Palestine and it's difficult with the work of CPT where it is about having those relationships and connections with people. Um, some of the other obstacles are just the general nature of the work. It is quite confronting. Um, each day you're faced with some form of physical violence in the community. Um, and there are times when you do feel unsafe and you cannot leave the situation. So it is a very confronting experience for um, foreigners to be going into. Um, and so then having that additional threat of being unable to go back in um, is hard for the foreign staff, but also the community um, when they are making those connections with people and um, yeah, trying to work long term with an organisation that just can't guarantee um, that, that safe visa. What happened when you were deported? Um, it's, I guess suppose the interesting story. Um, how did that play out? So I was 99% sure that I wasn't going to get back in. Um, a week before I had left the country previously, I had been arrested for accompanying a 14-year-old child that was being arrested. Um, my colleague and I refused to let the soldiers take him without us as the Guardian wasn't around. Um, and as a result, we were then arrested and detained uh, for about five hours and banned from the city. So I was unable to go back to Hebron um, to say my goodbyes um, as I would have been at risk of breaking the law and then having a court case against me. So I knew I wasn't going to get back in, but I couldn't not give it a go. Um, so I had gone to Jordan first because I knew my boss would be there to support me if I didn't get in. Um, and it wasn't a terrible experience. You hear terrible stories of people getting denied entry. I was questioned for about five hours. They kept me waiting for about eight. They kept me in a tiny room with no food, no water. Um, very aggressive young <laughs> soldiers um, who were making accusations um, that were completely untrue. Um, but as I had 
been working um, with the peace organization, I knew that there was nothing I could do in that moment. Um, so yeah, not a, not a fun experience. We had all been prepared and you do know that that's a risk of, of joining the CPT team in Palestine. Um, but yeah, it never gets easy. And then the following day or two later, um, they were actually doing a training for CPT workers in Jordan at the time. And I helped run a session on preparation for being deported. Um, so we pretty much played out what happened to me um, with the new trainees, which was helpful for them. <laughs> what about in Iraq and Kurdistan? What are some of the obstacles? Um, it's very easy to get the visa for Australians. <laughs> get a visa on arrival, you pay a bit of money and you're in. Um, and then moving within um, Kurdistan is fairly easy as well for foreigners. Um, it's much harder if you're Arabic actually because of the Kurdish history with uh, oppression from Arabs um, in the surrounding countries. But um, there, yeah, I don't think there's very many obstacles for um, foreigners for doing our work um, other than very general ones of um, when you're criticising the government, there is the risk that they will arrest you. Yeah, it's different. I guess in Palestine you are critical of the occupying Israel um, government but probably within Palestine there's support for you being there I would assume whereas in Iraqi Kurdistan often the human rights abuses that you were working against came from the Iraqi Kurdistan government and so did that provide additional challenges? Yeah yeah it's we, we have a registration within Kurdistan we have um, registration as an NGO work as an NGO and we have to renew it every year, um, which is often a long and tiring process. And um, it's renewed by the, by the political party in power, of which um, we often publish critical articles. <laughs> and so every time there's a risk of, oh, are they going to deny our registration this time? In which case we wouldn't legally be able to work. If we continue to work, um, we could be shut down, everyone, all the foreigners could be kicked out and um, our local teammates could be arrested. Um, so it is, yeah, that's something we're, we're always having to juggle, um, how to stay on um, relatively good terms with the government while still authentically um, critiquing them and um, supporting... Um, marginalized and oppressed people. Uh, I was actually thinking that one of the issues we do have with getting to areas um, is around us being critical of the Turkish cross-border bombings and that um, one political party in particular um, has close ties with Turkey and where the checkpoints that they man um, will try and stop us going into certain areas particularly where the Turkish military has established itself quite significantly and um, that there are now Turkish military checkpoints within Iraqi Kurdistan as well that we wouldn't be able to get through. You are both women. Um, 
small in stature, <laughs> if not in um, heart, you know. <laughs> the Middle East has a, a reputation, I guess, in the rest of the world, deserved or not, but also I guess the work that you're doing is often physically dangerous. I wonder if there are particular um, challenges that have come to you as women doing this work in that part of the world that you don't think men would have? I must say speaking Arabic changed my experience. So the first three months I was there, I barely spoke much Arabic. And when I went back, um, I found that I was listened to a lot more and treated better than my foreign male colleagues who didn't speak Arabic. So I do think having that ability helped navigate and often in any society um, situation where men are listened to more than women. Um, outside of that, I never felt unsafe within the local community as a woman. I did around the soldiers. Um, they were mainly young men, um, younger than me at the time. Um, and I was targeted quite a bit with sexual advances and things like that. So it was a very, yeah, definitely women had a very different experience to the, my male colleagues. Um, but then in addition to that, having non-binary colleagues, they were um, in an even tougher situation at the time, often unable to be presenting as their true self um, due to fear of being um, harassed by any, any community member or the military. Um, so yeah, there's definitely those dynamics at play, which are at play everywhere. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't particularly um, think it, it was harder for me. Um, part of it is being a foreigner, I think, and so you're not just a woman, <laughs> you're a foreigner. And there, there are quite a lot of women there in positions of um, authority working for embassies or um, other organisations as well and so it's not that unusual yeah I I don't think um, in terms of the work we were doing there was anything in particular about being female that changed I think um, it was harder to live there perhaps as a woman than it was for the men I found it much harder to meet females to make friends with um, there was like general restrictions about entering places um, that are only male spaces or yeah, going out as by yourself as a woman, um, you would get more stares sometimes. But I didn't actually, well, I never put myself in a situation where I felt unsafe and I felt um, like I got to do most of what I wanted to do. Um, male colleagues, who were foreigners who'd come definitely I think found it easier socially to meet people and um, to hang out with them as well. Another challenge that um, I find interesting is that CPT is an openly pacifist organisation and that's um, I guess part of the reason going into these conflict zones um, and it's interesting particularly in both Palestine and Kurdistan, that um, both these regions have a history of violent resistance to violent oppression. And um, that's quite a lot of the perception from outside, but also I think 
self-identified a lot of pride in that kind of resistance the intifada or like the um kurdish sort of paramilitary kind of resistance um what was the dynamic of being a a pacifist organization in that those environments yeah there was um a couple of different things at play like people's personal politics and um how they felt about um the armed resistance and then um the organization's stance on it as well as like legal the legal stance which you had to negotiate as well so like um in kurdistan the pkk um is considered a terrorist organization by um most western countries and I think it's the US has very strict laws around any organization to be seen working with the PKK can lose their registration and people can be arrested. And so we purely from a legal standpoint had to maintain a distance um, for the sake of our work and American colleagues that would be coming. And then it yeah, it's a it's a complicated history within Kurdistan of people who um, have been very oppressed and uh, support support the PKK and an armed resistance to that oppression. And um, Iraqi Kurdistan itself had um, Peshmerga who fought Saddam's um, army and the genocide against Kurds there and um, now have one semi-autonomy. And so uh, there's there's a fair amount of support in that, and then there's also people who just want to live their daily lives and don't want to be continue to be involved in an armed conflict, and are forced to be by proximity and um, are very angry about that uh, as well. I think as an international organisation, we didn't try to convince people in any particular way. Um, who are local, they can make up their own choices, but um, we're a pacifist organisation and do not work with armed groups. And um, so we're very clear continuously about that in situations where we were being asked to, in some way, communicate or work with them. We never really had issues with any groups that we worked with ever inclining that we should um, speak with or be involved with any groups that may have been armed or used um, any form of violent means. Um, and I think that was just purely based on the local nature of our work. Um, we weren't travelling much, so we were very much in a very confined area um, with those long kind of 20 plus year history of relationships with people. Um, but like Beck has mentioned, there are those overall um, situations and yeah, like Beck mentioned, we never kind of pushed our message of nonviolence. It was just purely our stance and our presence in the country. Um, but I think it's important to note with um, Palestine and probably everywhere they're working, the military and the Israeli government were still often implying or portraying CPT in situations as being part of a riot if we were at a protest or things like that. So there was always this portrayal of anyone supporting Palestine um, 
may be involved in some form of violent um, oppression. So yes, again, that kind of focus of the international governments as well as Israel trying to portray Palestine as a violent um, resistor um, and never Israel as a violent um, state, um, always the oppressed. Well, you are both uh, in Australia now and away from uh, these places where you spent time and working, but both Kurdistan and Palestine have been in the news a bit recently for um, natural disasters, oppressive governments, um, protests in Iran, things like that. Um, what do you think uh, the future look like, particularly, I guess, for CPT? Um, I think for Palestine it's changing. It has been really difficult for foreigners to get into the country um, and if they are to continually get in um, multiple times. So the nature of the team is changing and becoming more local, which is a really positive um, outcome um, and can potentially make it a more sustainable and long-term um, team. And potentially have new, well it will have new ways of working um, and have a lot stronger of a local insight. So that's really exciting to see unfold um, and it will be interesting to see whether that continues as a CPT project or if that then becomes more of a localised um, community organisation. Yeah, I think in the last um, couple of years, CPT's profile within um, Iraqi Kurdistan has grown quite a lot. We've uh, been very busy doing <laughs> doing a lot of work and have regularly been asked um, to expand within um, the country to open up an office in each of the major cities um, or move to one of the major cities. I don't see that happening and I don't um, see the team that we have there, which is very small, um, maximum of six people um, growing either, both because of um, there's not that many people willing to do that kind of work and um, yeah, struggling to continue to find fi funding as well. Um, CPT is run purely off donations and doesn't accept government donations or government sponsorship or <laughs> whatever you want to call it. And so it's um, been primarily through individuals and churches um, that they've managed to do that work. And it's always been a struggle to find that funding and continues to be. Mm. Are there things that fill you with hope for the future in those places? I read a book recently, an old Noam Chomsky book, and he talked about Israel causing its own destruction. And that gave me a little bit of hope because they're just, they're not stopping and they're only amped up in Palestine. Um, and it's just really hard to see any change happening on the ground and people are doing everything that they can. Um, the international community is not doing enough. Um, but I do, that can be, gave me a little bit of hope of maybe the oppressor will just destroy itself by its inability to to make any compromise or any abundance to human rights in, in Palestine. We'll see. 
I think because of the nature of our work, um, we meet a lot of activists. Um, and I'm always inspired by that, like these people who um, are, have amazing ideas and um, are willing to put so much on the line for um, their beliefs and what they're managing to achieve and do is really inspiring. And I think, oh, well, <laughs> if these people continue to exist, surely something's got to change eventually. Mm, that's the hope, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if people want to find out more about CPT, how can they do so? Um, CPT.org. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's, each team has their own um, social media pages you can follow on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram um, as well as their own websites but there's a centralised website of cpt.org as well and you can go on a mailing list there alright thanks very much Beck and Jazz thank you thanks that was Rebecca Dowling and Jasmine Pilbara, though, uh, two women who have been uh, spending time a few years each in the Middle East working with CPT, trying to find non-violent uh, resolutions to ongoing conflicts there and supporting uh, Kurds and Palestinians, two, I guess, stateless peoples with... Um, so many barriers to get to the kind of basic rights which we take for granted here. Um, as they said, you can uh, find out more or support the work that CPT do by heading to their website, cpt.org. That's about all we have time for on Paradigm Shift. I hope you enjoyed the show today. I'm um, privileged to know some of these people who have been you know, trying to creatively find ways to confront some of the problems in the world and uh, not just the, the some of the small problems that we deal with here, which take up a lot of our time if we're involved in activism and organizing, but also these big questions around international conflicts and human rights and what we can do. And so um, it's good to, to talk to people like uh, Jasmine and Beck. See you next week.